Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is underway, a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of the week, and we are happy to have you join us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union in Albany, here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. You doing okay, Alan? Uh, no, I have a bad back. But beside that, uh, what, I, what I wanted to mention was that I'm disappointed in you, Rex. You always say, maybe you'll get some insight, but you didn't say it this time. Yes. So could you say something about it? Well, I'm, I'm not holding out much hope for us. <laughs> okay. That's Rosemary Armeo, longtime investigative journalist and editor and uh, University of Albany professor. How are you doing, Rosemary? I'm hanging in there. Yes, sir. Yes, okay, and we're all doing our part from home. And Judy Patrick is here, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. Judy, what's the news? You know, it's a wonderful day. There's lots of news to report. Journalists should be happy all over the world, except we all wish that things would just slow down this summer like they do every other summer. <laughs> right, except for the last <laughs> three years. So part of the uh, issue that we have here is how difficult it is, actually. Judy's speaking about all the news that breaks. Actually, you have to pry news out of people. The effort to get information, even about COVID, this amazing threat that confronts us all, we now are seeing some comprehensive analysis of the spread of COVID-19, including the racial disparities, but this is only coming out as a result of lawsuits. The New York Times had to sue the Centers for Disease Control to get the data, and it's revealed some amazing information, including the notion that the Black and Latino population has been three times as likely as white people to contract COVID-19, twice as likely to be killed by it. What is it? Are we just looking for something special for the news media, or why do we have to go to court to get this information out? Alan, you're particularly critical, I think, of some of these courts on this issue. Well, first of all, I am very critical of the Supreme Court of uh, the United States, where I believe four vote for Trump, no matter how heinous whatever he does happens. But I'm pretty sure that some of these agencies want the information out, but they know that they would pay a heavy price if they got it out. So the word goes out, sue us and you'll get it. I think there's some of that that goes on, maybe not all the time, but some of it happens. I think it does. Rosemary, you've had to go to court a lot in your career to get information. This is just the deal. Every time you do an investigative story, people do not want information out because it makes them look bad, even criminal, which was my question. Never really well answered on the CDC controversy. Why were they hiding that report? Um, it was already out in the news media that um, minority communities were affected in an oversized way by the disease. What were, what were they hiding? Why were they hiding that? Was it really Trump-related? That, to me, does not seem to have been told. And if I can switch the topic one slight bit to the Mary Trump book, there is a fascinating account in that book and how the New York Times 
came to get the information about the Trump tax returns, super secret information like bank records. You don't normally get tax records. And the Times got such an enormous trove of them that they ended up doing a look at the financial picture of the Trump family, which won them a Pulitzer Prize and caused one sister to drop out of the federal judiciary and may yet have other repercussions. But they did it in the same way that the New York Times reporter and she said have portrayed. They covered Harvey Weinstein, again, a case where things were thought to be known, but no one gave the information. And it gets down to shoe leather, not to computers, not to fancy databases. It gets down to reporters who said, who would know? Let us think of who would know. And then they basically stalked those people, turned up on their doorstep, wrote them letters, wrote them telegrams, kept saying it's important for this story to come out. Please talk to us. Here's my card in case you change your mind. It took years of work and patience. And I'm so impressed with the times, with investigative reporters, and with those who, who kept after the CDC. It's good to rant and rave about how bad it is that we have to do this, but they actually did the work beside. Absolutely. It's not something that you can just depend upon the courts for, because sometimes the courts turn you aside. Judy, you know, during your years at the Gazette, I think the most notable case where we were blocked from information involved the Schenectady cops withholding information about officers who uh, apparently got drunk at a bachelor party and threw eggs. You remember that incident? That went to the state's top court. Right, and the Times Union and the Gazette together sued, and we lost that one, if you recall. We uh, we tried to get the names in the disciplinary records for, I think there were 18 police officers on that bus, a bachelor party. Now, this new law, the repeal of 50A, is retroactive, which means anybody's interested in going back all those years and finding the names of the police officers and what kind of discipline was meted out, it'd be an interesting story to read nowadays. Some of the cities in New York State are actually putting online all of their police disciplinary records. I think one out in western New York has already done this. They're being proactive, which is something I would really love to see. My guess is that that would be a community that hasn't had very much in the way of disciplinary <laughs> records where they have nothing that they're embarrassed about. And the cities that are going to be continuing to cover it up probably have things they'd rather not see. But, uh, yes, what you're referring to is the state finally just getting rid of Section 50A of the state civil rights law, which which prohibited the release of any information, disciplinary records involving cops. And then it was changed to include firefighters and prison guards. Um, and uh, this is uh, now we are able to, to get this information. But sometimes you bring suit and you lose. And in that case, the lawsuit ended up actually further curtailing our information because the state's top court, the New York State Court of Appeals, ruled against the media and in effect broadened 58. So thank goodness now, as a result of the pushback in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, that law has been changed after really 20 years that we've been pushing to try to get it changed. And by the way, you really do have to give a lot of credit to the electronic media as we speak today for putting on the conversation that occurred between Floyd and the guy with his knee on his neck. Because it really brings home in a way that, you know, if you just read about it, it's one thing. But when you see, literally hear what was going on, it is pretty dramatic. It is. Isn't that one of the great benefits of digital journalism these days, too? You're not limited to just having the print. Uh, you can actually hear and see it. Rosemary, what were you about to say? I was going to say that recording came out in a criminal court uh, brought forth by a lawyer trying to get one of the police officers off. He, he may have succeeded. And so it wasn't a, a 
noble work by journalists, it was the conflict of the right to a fair trial with the freedom of the press. And so what came out of it was information that is extremely interesting to hear. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes you get lucky. Stuff comes out in a court case, or sometimes I've had examples in my reporting life of finding an old civil case that has direct bearing uh, on something that is, suddenly becomes newsworthy. If you dig through courthouse files, you can find something. I worked on a project uh, once when I was a reporter on Long Island that took many months, and the uh, company actually bought me a small copier machine so that every morning I would wheel the copier machine into the county clerk's office where they had the records of the county courts. For weeks, I could copy records out of the court files and and unable to do an investigation. But sometimes that kind of work is what you have to do to get the stuff. Or sometimes you're lucky, as you were saying, the Mary Trump provision, 19 boxes of documents, she says in her book, that she provided to the New York Times. On an indictive relative. That's what Mary wanted to get back at Trump. And so she goes, like, she goes well, I don't have any records. And, and the reporters who know go, oh, well, your lawyer does. So the next day or 10 days later, she's at the lawyer's house. And she expected to get like a folder. And he walks her into a room and there are 19 boxes of documents. And she loads them into a taxi and takes them over to the to where she's meeting the reporters. And there is wild jubilation. I could feel that jubilation as she was writing about that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think Judy raised an important point. Now that those records are open, there's not a real appetite among the public to go back and look at those cases, which in the Albany Schenectady area go back at least to the 1970s that I know about. And yet... Is that not really the role of the of the press? Should we not be going back and reviewing? I don't think we have the manpower anymore for that kind of work anymore, but it certainly is worthwhile. And the other thing we might want to mention is that 50A is a New York State law, right? And there are other places, like I'm sitting in Massachusetts right now, and frankly, I don't know what the rules are here. So it is interesting. I do know that in the past, it's been a big question when you had a rogue cop with a terrible reputation as to whether or not you were going to be allowed to know what was in that folder. Many of these officers are still working at 20 years or, so, or or we've watched them be promoted through the years. And as they were promoted, we didn't know what their history was. We didn't know what they had been involved in. And so there are all these lingering questions. You know, the reason for it was to give the police officers, the corrections officers, and the firefighters some measure of protection. But what it did was just eliminated the public's right to know and the public's right to know whether or not government authorities were making good decisions. And you know what? There are bad cops. Look, a lot of people say, well, you know, so these cops, they handle things their own way. And these are bad people that they are often dealing with. Yeah, well, I got news for you that sometimes they are dealing with good people and they're exercising their authority in inappropriate ways. And I think people should know that. You know, there's often conflict between law enforcement and journalism. It's part of the appropriate scratchiness, let's say, of officialdom and serious journalism. But then, as you say, sometimes the the authorities break the rules. There was a report finally that came out this week as a result of a public records lawsuit against the Justice Department having to do with a raid 
in a home in San Francisco involving a freelance reporter named Brian Carmody. And there was a raid in May of 2019. San Francisco police wanted to find out how he knew about information involving police misconduct. So they went to his home and with the help of the FBI, basically seized his equipment, detained and questioned him for six hours, searched the home and office to learn the identity of a confidential source who had leaked an internal police report to Carmody. This violates all sorts of rules that the FBI has set up for itself. We only know about this because Carmody got hundreds of thousands of dollars in a settlement with the city of San Francisco. But now we're just getting this information through a federal lawsuit. So to Alan's point, there are sometimes bad actors who intentionally harass reporters. I can't imagine what the rationale would be for this kind of behavior. There obviously is none. They settle. That's a big settlement. But how egregious that is, and that's the danger that if the story is big enough or the official about to be embarrassed is high enough up, rules go out the window at least for a while. And that seems to have been what happened in this case, don't you think? It sounds that way. Alan? I was going to say I do remember once when I was exploring the misdeeds of some of the people on the Great Barrington Police Force that a group of WAMC people were coming over for some reason or other, and they got stopped, and it was quite clear why they were stopped. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. In other words, it was laid right out there. Yeah. Sometimes you find out after the fact that uh, um, the reason that you're paranoid is because people are out They're to get out you. They're out to get you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And, you know, this is, this is what totalitarian governments do. And this particular journalist didn't, was a freelancer, so he didn't have the benefit of having an organization to fight for him as well. So he's kind of on his own. As we've said, it violates almost every norm about this country. Reporters are supposed to be able to be out there, to be independent, to be able to gather information. This happened in Australia, too, last year, which was unconscionable. And I'm surprised there wasn't more of a a backlash against this, because I'm glad it doesn't happen too often, but this was, again, unconscionable. I'd like to just mention, and and something that I have complimented Rex on before, and you too, uh, Judy, when you were at the Gazette, You guys have the resources to sue when you have to. Most papers, most little tiny papers don't have that. You get into a lawsuit like that, it can cost you tens of thousands of dollars. And therefore, despite the fact that the courts can be relied on, even if you just sue to get something, it's going to cost you money, right? It will cost you money unless you are confident that you're going to prevail, in which case New York state law has been modified uh, saying that judges shall cover the legal fees, uh, that is the losing side if they are illegally withholding information, they'll have to pay your lawyers. So they are uh, now forewarned, but there is less of that legal action going on these days than there used to be because nobody has the resources they used to, right? Is that what you were going to point out, Rosemary? No, I actually related, Rex. I was going to say that I worked for years with organizations that encouraged journalists at those little papers without the Hearst or the New York Times legal team to back them, to try it anyway, that they would do training and how to file a freedom of information request, how to appeal it, how to respond to a no, you can't have the information in a way that might get something out of it, and even to make appeals and go to court. The Reporters Committee, for example, would pro bono send lawyers to help defend you, and it should not be the difficulty of it should not be an excuse for not using freedom of information. More to the problem today is that there aren't journalists doing any kind of investigations because we're so short.
shorthanded. Even covering routine meetings that used to be the bread and butter of our coverage, it's hard to manage that now to get it all done. Judy, the organization you work for actually provides training for small newsrooms in this kind of thing, right? Right. We we do about how to how to file FOILs and encourage people to file FOILs and to connect them with nonprofit groups that will help them challenge this in court. But even those resources are stressed and they're few and far between today. You have to understand challenging one FOIL denial in court will be the equivalent of a reporter's salary for a year, at least. And in newsrooms where there are only four or five reporters left, that's an easy decision to make. You're not going to go to court and challenge it because you need that person. And it's a shame. So, you know, this is the kind of official pushback that journalists get, but there's also some very serious stuff that goes on from the general public that I think a lot of citizens are not aware of, and that is the kind of harassment that journalists can get on social platforms. You know, we have seen reports lately about journalists being arrested, even attacked by cops while covering demonstrations, even if they're showing their press credentials. This has happened. But harassment digitally is now pervasive. And the question is where it goes beyond hurting a journalist's feelings or something to where the threats of violence or assault are serious and what the impact of of that can be on, on, on journalism. Now, here's one, Alan, where you get a lot of harassment online, I would bet, right? We get some, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. And what's the point? Look, these troll types, they know very well how far to go. If they threaten you with bodily harm or death or this or that, they can get themselves into real trouble. So they imply, they suggest, they hint, but somehow they know the rules. And it is very unattractive, and it's very scary when it happens. You know, these assaults are predominantly, though, against women, women journalists. I mean, the research has shown that the the, the nasty, the rude, these kinds of assaults primarily are directed toward women. And it doesn't just stay online. I had an incident where I had a reporter who was being trolled, and then this person started to show up at events she was covering. So this is something newsroom leaders really have to pay attention to and be mindful of. And it's not just as easy as calling up the police and saying, hey, this guy's hassling my reporter because there's there's free speech as well. So, you know, we, we always encourage people, you know, we think of reporters as really tough and they can take any kind of assault, but I think editors really need to be careful and need to stand up for their reporters and the photographers in the field and make sure they're safe. And how do you do that? You have to establish an atmosphere where they will come to you when they feel threatened or because a lot of times they don't even want to admit that they're scared. So you have to establish that kind of atmosphere. Then you have to take action. You have to intervene. If you see someone attacking your person, you have to step in. It's not easy, but the first step is to making sure the reporters let you know that something's happening. I think that's really important. Training on reporter safety has become a huge part of investigative skill training uh, in the last few years. And we may it at the organization that I worked for doing really dangerous stuff, organized crime. It was a fireable offense if you got a threat, even so much as a phone threat that was done in a joking manner and did not alert your editor. That's how important it was because it isn't just one reporter that's threatened. It's the whole organization when a threat like that comes in. And there was training on uh, being aware all the time, whether you're being observed or not, because the evidence is that no one just impulsively goes and kills a journalist. They study them and learn their patterns 
and then wait for an opportunity. So that's important. There's a routine established when you go for an interview. You have to contact your editor every so often or else we send in the troops to find out what happened to you. So there's all kinds of things that can be done to minimize the harm. The horror of this to me, though, is that it's necessary that you can kill or injure journalists with impunity in most places in the world and that the public kind of cheers on the people who are doing the harm. We have not done a very good PR job in convincing people how important our job is to them. I think that's exactly right. And, of course, we're up against uh, uh, a White House that continually tells people that uh, journalists are the enemy of the people. And so that's a hard PR wall to scale. So you try to get some protection elsewhere. Uh, You know, social media platforms have user agreements that are supposed to prevent online harassment, but they don't always take action against the abusers. In fact, Facebook had an independent audit that it commissioned to look at its decisions. This was primarily in the context of hate speech. And it found that this independent audit found that Facebook allowed hate speech, allowed disinformation to thrive. And the fear is that this could have an impact on the upcoming election. And yet nothing has happened about this. We were talking last week about the advertiser boycott of Facebook, which seems to not have had any impact on Facebook's management, on Mark Zuckerberg. I think, is there a role that consumers can play in this? What can we do about it? Well, people can stop using Facebook. That would be telling. I happen to be a believer that as much as possible, you really have to allow social media to do its thing. But I do think they have a responsibility, and I think they may be getting that message now, although, you know, Zuckerberg has, in fact, been meeting with people. And so we'll have to see if anything specific comes out of this. But I do think they have that responsibility. If somebody if somebody's doing something dangerous, they should have some capacity for being able to mitigate that. How do you impact an organization that's richer than God and has an untethered control over its operation for decades? That's the question. And I'm not so unhopeful as you, Rex, that the advertiser boycott will not have an effect. It's not that old. Certainly uh, losing 100,000, 200,000 users would, would wake them up, but it's hard to do, and I'm one of those users who should not be on. I hate what Zuckerberg is doing, and yet I love Facebook. There's right. one sign of hope from in New Zealand where uh, the largest newspaper group there is called Stuff. They just announced this week they will no longer post their content on Facebook. They're giving it a try to see how it goes. Now, a lot of, we all know that we get a lot of traffic from Facebook, but these people are saying they can now no longer participate in what, in a, on a platform that they consider promotes hate speech and misinformation. So starting in New Zealand, small little country, but let's see if anybody else follows. They beat coronavirus too, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> let's, 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 let's be clear here. If anybody goes back and listens to this program, we know that there's a certain amount of angst on the part of uh, newspapers about how social media is stealing their income. So I want to be very clear when we're doing this program that we're not just pursuing that because some of our panel members are so suspect <laughs> of this. Are you, are you sort of following me here? But I think Judy's point is that we get a lot of interaction with our communities through Facebook. Facebook exactly. has been a great advantage for the media. Um, but the problem is that Zuckerberg takes this hard line. He says his company is not an arbiter of truth. It's not going to police content for whether it's true or not. 
And uh, when you have the power of Facebook, what that does is that you're basically saying, we are the amplification for messages, and we're going to amplify stuff without regard for whether it's true. I don't think that's a responsible position for a corporation these days. Yeah. And we're not talking small little matters. I mean, Facebook helped to set off genocide in the Rohingyas in Burma and has caused an interference in the election in the United States and has done nothing since then. And all at the same time is saying, no, 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 we don't want to be regulated by the government. That's fine, but where's the regulation on your part? Part of the problem is, of course, the president. For example, this, this audit, that uh, the independent audit of Facebook, particularly looked at three posts that the president posted in May on Facebook, which were hateful and violent speech, uh, which harmed voters. Facebook left them untouched, um, mm-hmm. even though the auditors who were at work at the time said uh, you should do something about that. That sets a terrible precedent, you know. It means yes. that a lot of that stuff could continue to appear into the election season. And not just here in the U.S., but around the world, you're going to give these powerful leaders the ability to say whatever they want without without being held ac- uh, accountable. Um, so it's, we, every time we talk about Facebook, we need to understand the impact it's having on other countries, at least here in America. We have a free press that can speak up and challenge them, but there are other places where that's not the case at all. Well, on that point, we're going to have to let it go. We are out of time, amazingly enough. What an interesting conversation here. So we hope that uh, our listeners will agree and uh, will come back and hear us again another time. Alan Shartok of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, editor Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. We thank you for joining us this week on The Media Project. It's wonderful to represent the flag. Sadie Smuggery She wanted money to buy a new fur coat To get insurance she employed Skullduggery The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download Download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Tingling-ling newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspapermen are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the show. Publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>